Welcome once more to the History Obscura Reading Room. I do hope everyone is feeling alright out there. I know this is kind of a strange time. We all thought 2020 was going to be different, I think. But as we hit the halfway point, it feels more and more like the same old things in circulation again. The Lycoi are hungry and prowling for inappropriate meals. The high moisture level in the air has rotted our seed potatoes in the ground. And the same civil unrest that has been smoldering away for centuries has flared up again. The only difference is, this year, if you hit the streets to try to change the world, you'd best wear a sanitary mask. On that note, I'd like to share a newspaper article with you from October 6th, 1918 in the Washington Times, entitled Medical Science's Newest Discoveries About the Spanish Influenza. The article is subtitled How the First Real Epidemic of the World War Spread from the German Trenches and Why Science Believes It Has Averted All Danger of Catastrophic Pestilence. Thanks to the author, Dr. Gordon Henry Hirschberg. Once upon a time, the first really serious epidemic of disease produced by the Great War that was called the Spanish Influenza. It has caused deplorable mortality in New York and New England. At the outset, it should be said that the term Spanish Influenza is clearly in error, and that the name should be German Influenza, for investigation proves that the disease originated in the German trenches. It has since made a tour of the entire civilized world, in the course of which it broke out with special severity in Spain owing to certain local conditions. The French, noting its ravages in Spain and not having suffered very badly themselves, gave it the title Spanish Influenza. That this should be the only epidemic disease produced by the World War is a remarkable proof of the protection afforded to us by modern medicine and hygiene. After nearly all other great wars, as a result of the misery, starvation, and enfeeblement of the population, there have been great outbreaks of pestilence which have depopulated cities and even countries. The disease, generally known as the bubonic plague, is the Great Plague which caused the ravages of past war epochs. Its cost in human lives has not been less than two billion. In addition, outbreaks of smallpox, cholera, typhus and yellow fever have followed debilitating wars. Fortunately, our enormous progress in medicine and our material resources for combating disease give assurance that no plague epidemic of such magnitude of those in the past can occur in America at the present time. How widespread has been the outbreak of Spanish influenza is shown by the fact that our Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Franklin D. Roosevelt, suffered from it. 
At about the time he was recovering, the youngest son of the King of Sweden died of it. The first known advent of the influenza in this country occurred when the Norwegian ship Bergensfjord arrived in New York on August 12th with 25 cases, three of which died. But there were probably other sources of infection. Apart from the report that the German U-boats surreptitiously disseminated the infection in this country. Independent sources of infection apparently reached Boston and New England, where the disease raged most alarmingly, causing 70 deaths in one day and 9,000 cases at the Camp Devons military camp. And now, just what happens to the sufferer from Spanish influenza? From observations of 1,000 soldiers, it was found that from one to three days after contact or approach to others who had the disease, a feverish state began. This fever rose steadily until on the second or third day afterwards, it was as high as occurs in pneumonia in many cases. It went as high as 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Indeed, it is apparent that one of the most common, as well as the most dangerous complications, is that of pneumonia. The disease starts with a chill, or chills that may shake the whole room you are in. Severe headaches with pains in the legs, in the groin, in the neck, and in the small of the back are generally present. Then that tired feeling, named by doctors General Malaise, takes charge of the sufferer's anatomy. The victim feels wretched all over. Fever, blisters, those frequent accompaniments of pneumonia, of meningitis, and of tertiary malaria break out on the sufferer's lips. The face becomes flushed. A thermometer stuck under the tongue registers 102 to 104 degrees, and the victim, as well as his doctors, know he's in for it badly. Spanish influenza kills or cures in Liberty Motor Speed within four days. The worst is usually over about the second day. Then an abrupt crisis takes place. On the fourth day, the patient is either as well as he ever was, or pneumonia and other complications assert their dangerous presence. A harsh cough is a frequently encountered symptom. The patient thus hacks and sprays forth lots of the microbes which spread the infection quickly, unless handled with the greatest precaution. A thick, tenacious sputum of a whitish distinguishes this new disease from the old well-known influenza with greenish sputum. This also distinguishes Spanish influenza from pneumonia with its typical rusty-colored, tough expectoration. If you take close notice of the several differences between this new malady and the old influenza, you will observe that the fever is sharper, higher, but of shorter duration. The total course of the new scourge is briefer. 
there are fewer stomach or intestinal symptoms in the Spanish influenza, whereas in the previously known influenza, gastrointestinal disturbances were predominant. And most important, discovery has just been made with regard to this disease, this specific microbe which causes it. This is a complete disproof of the assertion in some medical publications that the bacillus was the same as that of the old influenza, or grip. This interesting discovery is due to the researches of three English army surgeons. The last great pandemic, or grip, of influenza lasted three years from 1889 until 1892. It spread like wildfire over the civilized world during that period. Then, several American bacteriologists at work simultaneously, and Professor Pfeiffer, discovered the grip germ, or influenza bacillus, which has since been confirmed and established as the specific cause of the cold pains, back aches, and other classical symptoms of our old-time grip. The present scourge, it was soon found, is much more malignant and entirely different from the other. The manner in which the bacterial agent which causes this plague was run to earth is a model of the bacteriological skill, supremacy, efficiency, and patience of the English and American medical staffs. It was recognized that the rapidity with which the contagion spread pretty well pointed to some microbe or bacterium as the guilty party. It was also argued that the causative agent must lurk, at least a large part of the time, in or near the air passages of the victim. The coughs, the sputum, the pneumonia and the bronchitis complications, the spray from the nose and throat as it came in direct contact with the men or reached them through plates, dishes and linens, seemed to invite bacteriological searches and microscopic studies. Fortunately for all of us on this side of the ocean, medical science has succeeded in isolating and identifying the germs in just that way. At the very beginning of the American epidemic, which is therefore likely to be nipped in the bud, the new bacillus is not in the blood. Cultivation of it is impossible from this source. When the bacteriologists explored the discharges and excretions from the nose, the pharynx, and the throat, lo and behold, their pioneer work was at last rewarded, spread upon glass, and examined under a magnification of 1200 times. A new microscopic living world opened up before their astonished gaze. A veritable beehive of trembling, vibrating vasily, almost as round and as small and resembling the diplococcus of meningitis, loomed up beneath the high magnifications of the microscope. The physicians and scientists of the allied countries are seriously considering whether or not the germs of this disease have been intentionally disseminated by the German government with the intention of weakening their opponents. No definite conclusion has been reached on this point. 
but the charge cannot be hastily dismissed, as the German government has already been convicted of employing disease germs against civilians in Romania. The disease was first observed by army doctors to be raging in German trenches on the Flanders front in the wet weather of last spring. From the front, it passed to the weakened interior population of Germany with great severity. It then broke out in Spain, and as the French civilians first noticed its ravages there, they called it Spanish influenza. It is significant that intercourse between Germany and Spain by U-boat, and in other ways, has been particularly frequent. From these two centers, its worldwide spread has started that the influenza germs have been secretly scattered in this country by German U-boats is a difficult charge to prove, but their gas attacks on the crews of our lightships and lighthouses furnished character evidence against them. It is scientifically demonstrated that the germs increase in virulence with the number of persons they pass through until finally the system acquires immunity against them through infection. Treatment for the disease is simple. Surgeon General of the Public Health Service summarizes it as follows. Fresh air, rest in bed, abundant food, free action of the intestines with Dover's powder for the relief of pain. Every case with fever should be regarded as serious and kept in bed in order to guard against infection. It is necessary to keep the mouth and nose clean and healthy by means of some mild antiseptic and to treat all colds promptly. A wash composed of one teaspoonful boric acid, one teaspoon bicarbonate of soda, and one teaspoonful of common salt will be found very useful in keeping the nose and throat clean. The disease is spread by droplet infection that is, by little drops swarming with germs scattered by infected persons who sneeze, spit, and cough in public places. One sneeze in a streetcar may infect the whole city. It is therefore very comforting to know that Health Commissioner Copeland of New York has called a meeting of regional managers and others with a view to enforcing the laws against spitting in public. Kissing is another prolific method of infection, and this practice should be stopped, except in cases where it is absolutely indispensable to happiness. Kissing between members of the gentle sex can certainly be abolished without hardship. Army doctors have found the gauze face mask very useful in preventing infection. This is made with three or four layers of gauze, in the shape of a rectangle, 5 by 7 inches, covering the mouth and nose and secured by a band over the ears and round the back of the head. The mask is worn by all patients unless isolated. It is worn by all doctors and other persons coming in contact with patients. You heard it here first, no more kissing and certainly no more spitting, unless absolutely necessary.
Stay healthy, everyone, and may you all find your peace. Good night. 